This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Answers, because uh, I know many of you will have a lot of questions, and we will try to especially recognize people who haven't had a chance to talk yet during that session. Let me provide the brief biographical information. The full information is in your materials. Um, first, David Black, who joined the Department of Education in 2004 and is currently the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Enforcement in the Department's Office for Civil Rights. And in that capacity, Mr. Black acts as a principal advisor to the Assistant Secretary on Civil Rights Enforcement to further the mission of the OCR. That mission is to ensure equal access to education and promote educational excellence throughout the nation through vigorous enforcement of civil rights. Prior to his um, appointment, Mr. Black worked as an attorney in the area of civil rights, labor and employment law and litigation as a member of the U.S. Army Judge Advocate General's Corps in the Office of the Attorney General for the State of Minnesota and as a Russian linguist with the U.S. Army, which undoubtedly prepares him for the questions he's now going to get this <laughs> yeah. afternoon. Professor Carol Oglesby is chair of the Department of Kinesiology. I never say that right, I'm sorry, um, Carol, at California State University Northridge, a position she's held since 2003. Prior to that appointment, she served as a therapist at the Northwestern Psychological Services and professor at Temple. She's the author of Women in Sport, From Myth to Reality, and editor of the Encyclopedia of Women in Sport in America. She was a member of the Board of Directors of the U.S. Olympic Committee on the Olympic Committee Registry of Sports Psychology. She's received numerous awards, including, and I'll just list a couple, the National Association of Girls and Women in Sports Honors Fellows, the Association of Intercollegiate Athletics for Women's Award of Merit, the Women's Sports Foundation Billie Jean King Contribution Award and the Tate McKinsey Award and S.T. Henry Con Award for Contributions to African American Professional Development. Judith N. Sweet joined the NCAA as Vice President for Championships and Senior Women's Administrator in 2001. Uh, two years later, she was promoted to Senior Vice President for Championship and Education Services and then, after her retirement from the NCAA, became a consultant for that organization and for other um, organizations concerned with gender equity. Prior to her work um, with the NCAA, she served as director of athletics at the University of California, San Diego, when she became one of the first women in the nation selected to direct a combined men's and women's intercollegiate athletics programs. During her tenure as athletics director of the U.S. The UCSD athletics program involved 23 varsity teams. Its members won 26 NCAA national championships. 32 teams were national finalists. And in 2006, she was named one of the NCAA and Centennial 100 most influential student athletes and was presented the NACDA James Corbett Award, the higher, highest honor bestowed on an athletics administrator. And finally, our very own Tara Vanderveer, widely viewed as one of the most respected and accomplished coaches in the world. She is, um, uh, uh, her exceptional contributions to the sports were recognized in April 2002 when she was inducted into the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame. She's currently in her 21st year as the head coach of the Stanford winning uh, women's basketball team. She entered that 
uh, the current year with the fourth highest career winning percentage among active Division I women's basketball coaches. She's won two NCAA championships, eight conference titles. She was international, she became internationally known in 96 when she guided the U.S. Olympic women's basketball team to a gold medal in Atlanta. She's also author of Shooting from the Outside, which chronicled her Olympic and national team experience. And I've asked um, Mr. Black to start us off. Okay, thank you very much. And I do want to, again, like everyone else that's, uh, that sat up here today or had the privilege of sitting up here today, uh, thank Stanford, in particular, Professor Rohde and Dina for all the legwork and, and hard work that they uh, put together this conference. It, it was a a great vision to bring everyone here and honestly discuss Title IX. There's a lot of uh, misinformation out there about Title IX and the best way to, clar to clarify that is for us to come, in, come together, start communicating, and learn the real facts. So again, I thank them for putting this conference together. I'm going to be very brief. I know there's probably a lot of questions for me. I want to uh, answer your questions. I'm not going to sit up here and tell you what I want you to hear. Um, I'm not going to convince a lot of you uh, one way or the other on Title IX or surveys, but I do want to try to clarify some of the questions that you have, so I'm going to try to be extremely brief and save a lot of time for questions. Um, Bob Bolsley was up here earlier and he said he's not a Title IX expert. I'm not a Title IX expert either. However, I do have the fortune of representing uh, OCR and that is where the Title IX experts are. The people that do the day-to-day -day investigations out in the field, um, they're Title IX experts. And one of, that's the one thing I am going to talk about and not in the form of a question is try to clarify one misconception that's out there and I heard a lot of today and that's that OCR uh, does not enforce Title IX and that the only option we have for enforcement is termination of federal funds. Uh, let me clarify that to tell you that that's our ultimate enforcement option. That is the big hammer. But what has been lost in the translation is that under the statute itself, uh, Title VI and Title IX adopts the enforcement mechanisms of Title VI, uh, we're required to work with institutions to bring them uh, into compliance through informal means. We cannot just go to terminating federal funds. So the statistics out there of there's never been termination of federal funds, that's for a reason. We are obligated by statute and regulations to sit down with the institutions and bring them into compliance. And that is what we do. I don't know why uh, those results are not communicated, but any institution who's represented out here that we had an investigation with some of them will find that it wasn't a very pleasant experience. Uh, someone was up here and talked about um, the, uh, the case, now I'm going to uh, draw a blank on it, the Williams case, I believe, that uh, the Supreme Court heard recently that found uh, retaliation as a private cause of action. Retaliation's always been a private, or a cause of action with OCR. Um, if you go and you read some of the testimony from that Supreme Court argument, you have the school district on one side saying OCR is a horrible uh, government agency with a big hammer that comes in and is extremely unreasonable. You had others on the other side of the issue saying OCR is asleep at the switch, 
they're not doing anything to enforce OCR or enforce Title IX. Well, I can tell you those people that I represent, some of them who are in this room, former employees of OCR, they do a fabulous job of working to bring institutions into compliance with Title IX. Now, you may not read about it in the papers, but if we go in and do an investigation and find a problem, uh, we will bring them into compliance. And, and oftentimes, it's not through the termination of federal funds because a lot of the Title IX problems we see aren't necessarily uh, in an intent to keep women from athletics. It's misconceptions. It's uh, ignorance. Um, so once we get there, find the violation, we sit down with the institution, work to bring them into compliance. That means adding teams. That means updating facilities. That means giving uh, female athletes better access to practice and game times. Um, but we do enforce Title IX. I want to clarify that because I think it's um, disrespectful to those who do the work every day that I have the fortune of representing to say that they don't take their job seriously. There are some of them who commit their lives to Title IX and other uh, civil rights statutes that we enforce, and I, I want to clarify that they do a fantastic job with that. Um, I'm going to save my comments for the uh, on the survey, I think that I'll probably get uh, a fair number of questions on that, so I'll have an opportunity to clarify there. If I don't get to make some statements on that, I do reserve some time at the end to try to clarify, but I expect I'll have a question on that one. Thank you. And do you want to say a roll about your enforcement budget or wait until the questions come? Well, if I, I can address that. Um, someone had asked about that, that it's a... Uh, the federal government decides where they want to spend their money. The, the budget for OCR is not part of the Department of Education's budget. We have our own budget granted to us by Congress. And that budget has actually grown over the years. We have a much larger budget today than we did last year and the year before that. The problem is um, something that all federal agencies are facing. Your budget only buys so much now. OCR doesn't have a lot of discretionary spending in our budget. Our budget is primarily um, our salaries. We have uh, 650 employees enforcing civil rights statutes. Uh, so the remainder of our budget is travel and training, most of it's salary. But we have an aging workforce. And with an aging workforce, you, uh, you've achieved the pinnacle of your profession. So you're getting paid more. The benefits have increased. These are all good things. However, now we buy fewer and fewer people with that budget that we're getting. So we used to have, I was talking to Valerie last night, a former employee of OCR. When she was there, they had 1,100 employees uh, doing our job. Now we have about 650. And we have probably twice the number of complaints that we did back then. Uh, so it's. The budget is still increasing. It just buys less people than it did before. Thanks. Okay. I've got a punch your button. As everyone else, I want to start out by saying thank you to the Center on Ethics here at Stanford and Aurora Foundation and, and Dina. Uh, for all the hard work. At a more primal level, I'm also 
thankful to Liam, who's doing the technology here, um, and um, Linda Carpenter, who loaned me their remote. Uh, I have a love-hate relationship. Uh-oh. <laughs> See, it started up already with... Uh, should it be the second button, they said? <laughs> Sorry. I knew he was going to do a rescue. There we go. Thank you. Uh, one of the really special parts of the uh, conference today for me has been the uh, broad coalition kind of potential uh, that is based in the different backgrounds and the different ages and just the diversity generally of, of the group here today. So um, how will we know when we get there to gender equity? Um, I think it's partly an aspect of commercialism and materialism in our culture as was addressed by uh, one of the panels this morning that our fallback or default position when we're thinking about how to get there on something like uh, gender equity is to go to numbers and the percentages, the proportions, the targets, they're very important and uh, these are clear and precise markers. Uh, I don't want to get confused as a person who's against the numbers or not interested in the numbers or, not, or saying that the numbers are not important. But on the other hand, if numbers were all there is to that, we would not have this panel convened uh, this afternoon. My supposition is that the organizers of the conference are posing this question, how do we know when we get there because they have the sense, as I do, that uh, partly the answer to the question, how will we know when we get there, is something that is in the gut. Our guts will tell us when we're there to gender equity. And right now, our guts are telling us, no, we're not really quite there yet. So, the therapist training part of me, I was thinking, okay, I'll get people to close their eyes and visualize an enormous collective gut. Then I was thinking, no, no, we don't want to visualize that. Uh, for some of us, it's too much of a problem already. Uh, so let me give this a more uh, glorified academic sounding name, like maybe public consciousness um, or collective consciousness in regard to uh, expectations for a fair deal for women in sport. I think we have had all sorts of documentation today that the fair deal is much closer today than it was in the 1970s, but we're not there yet. Not there at all. Um, in my way of thinking, there is more than equity. It's a, a consciousness of sufficiency for every woman's becoming all she can be, uh, a sufficiency to become all her potential, including that of the body. We come a lot closer to these ideas of sufficiency towards potential, potentiality in areas other than uh, sports and uh, physical activity. Um, in Western culture, for example, we um, place a lot of emphasis uh, on literacy, and at our best, we fight illiteracy. More recently, uh, we've come, identified another important basic human right, um, 
numeracy, numeral liter literacy, and we're fighting innumeracy. But I want to pose another idea of a, a human right. Maybe we could call it motoracy. I'm not sure that's a great term, but it fit with the illiteracy and, and numeracy ideas. Motoracy, uh, a, a literacy of knowledge and skills in movement, sport, and exercise that would last through the lifetime. There, for me, is this public consciousness or our collective gut telling us that motoracy is a birthright of every girl and woman, a prime requisite for quality of life for every male and female alike. Our collective gut is telling us we have no such um, sense of a basic human right of that type right now. We've discarded physical education generally for the most part, especially even here in California. When schools and colleges cut boys and men's sports in a misguided attempt to grow girls and women's sport, I hear in the public discourse at my institution, in newspapers and television, uh, in other, uh, every venue, a sense of tragic loss. And some of the people that have been our compatriots and peers uh, this afternoon have talked about that, tra that tragic loss. A sense that for boys and men to lose opportunities for sport is an injustice of cosmic proportions. I, I do not hear that same kind of sense of tragic loss uh, all the time when people are talking about the fact that girls and women went for so long without those opportunities um, and, and even yet have not reached uh, that, that sense of motoracy, a, a, a basic human right in these kind of skills and knowledges. So um, how do we know when we get there? I think a major campaign um, is still needed that would be uh, brought about by broad and deep coalitions uh, and years of strategies to try to change this public consciousness so that we would have that sense that every girl and woman is um, uh, uh, an, an individual who has that basic human right. Ironically, girls' and women's opportunity to play, to develop physically, to participate in sport as a celebration of community and culture are all recognized as basic human rights in many of both the oldest and the newest of the United Nations covenants. Uh, motoracy, in that sense, has... Uh, I want to just indicate briefly what some of these covenants would be. Uh, the idea of the primal base right to, uh, to play and sport uh, are enshrined, in a sense, in legal and ethical documents approved by the United Nations starting in 1948 and UNESCO right up to uh, the Beijing Platform for Action and even beyond that. So the legal, and this is the irony, I think, the legal and ethical standing of this basic human right is there, but where we still don't have it in too many instances is in the gut. Thank you. Welcome to Stanford. Wouldn't you know I go after a PowerPoint presentation. Um, and great notes and numbers. I have uh, no statistics, no PowerPoint. Um, but what I'd really like to um, maybe share with you today is more of a, a personal experience that uh, I'm kind of before Title IX, obviously part of Title IX, 
and uh, how, how I've been influenced by it. I don't know that there's anyone else in this room that you know, has had one law affect their lives uh, so powerfully. Um, so I'm going to backtrack just a little bit. Uh, I grew up in upstate New York, and um, both of my parents are, are very athletic and uh, very much into sports. And the big night out for us on a Friday night with our family was going to the Y, uh, jumping on the trampoline, uh, taking, you know, five kids. It was a cheap Friday night out, going in the pool, and really doing a lot of physical things, which my parents always encouraged. And as a young girl growing up, um, for whatever reason, I just went crazy after the third grade gym class, which we had, uh, doing a three-player weave. It was called three-man weave, but, uh, you know, and loving this crazy game of basketball. So I just went out and played with, the, you know, the boys and the girls in the neighborhood, and in the third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, all the boys and girls played together. And then as I got older, it became apparent that it was not okay for the girls to play. So in order for me to play with the boys in the neighborhood, I always had the best ball. And if they wanted to use my ball, I got to play. Um, I, in the seventh grade, uh, there was a young man who I loved watching basketball. I sat down as a young child and watched the Boston Celtics that were on television once a week. Uh, if I had been growing up now, I would have flunked out of junior high because so much basketball is on, I'd want to watch it all. But I would diagram plays, and I, you know, my dad, we would talk about, you know, why you know, the strategy of the game. So from the very beginning, I just was crazy about this game of basketball. And as a seventh grader, I went to a school that was about half an hour away, and I, I couldn't play on a team. There were no teams for girls. There were there was no uh, seventh grade team for boys. There was eighth grade team for boys, ninth grade team for boys. Uh, junior varsity and varsity, but no girls anything. And so the only way to go for me was I could um, be the mascot. So I put on a bear costume and I went. And in the middle of the season, I was actually um, fired from the job because instead of cheering and turning towards the stands, I was watching the game with the, with the bear head off. So then that I couldn't go. But uh, in my seventh grade yearbook, I had a young man who was the best male basketball player right in my yearbook. Uh, you'll go to the Olympics in basketball someday. There weren't even Olympics for basketball. I don't know how we knew that, but I hung on to that. In my ninth grade yearbook, the boys' gym teacher who uh, wrote in my yearbook, to the best basketball player in the ninth grade, boy or girl. And I was really proud of that, except that I didn't get a chance to play on any teams. Well, my parents moved when I was in the 10th grade, and I thought, new image. No more basketball. I'm going to try out for cheerleading. Uh, which I went and had a horrible experience. I went out for a big cheer. My shirt busted open, didn't make the squad. Um, but, you know, it was, it was my parents, because we had never had a hoop in our driveway. My parents, we moved, they gave in, and they said, all right, we're going to put a hoop up. I said, I am never playing on this hoop, and I never did. Well, they said, all right, your other, you know, I have other brothers and sisters. They played on it. But I'm like, basketball was so, I loved it so much, but it was so painful, and I was like, I'm having nothing to do with this. I'm 15 years old. I'm too old for basketball. So I said, that's it. I'm done with it. And, but at the same time, I kind of just, maybe I had a little, you know, I was kind of getting my little fix on the side. I was reading all these books about basketball. Of course, they were all boys' books. And the librarian called my dad in the ninth grade and said, uh, Mr. Vanderveer, I'm very worried about Tara. And he goes, why? And he, she, the librarian said, she has read every book in the, bas in the library about basketball. And I was just like, Dad, you know, I just like reading about it. And it was, um, it was something, though, I kind of had, I wanted to get out of my system. Well, I ended up going to college. 
uh, where I was on a team at the State University of New York at Albany. I jumped center. I was a leading rebounder, leading scorer, leading assist, and leading turnover, and our team was horrible. And I decided I convinced four other friends to drive out to the AIW National Championship, which was in Norman, Illinois, and this would have been, I graduated from high school in 71, so uh, this would be right around Title IX time. And I took notes on all the teams, and I decided I was going to transfer to Indiana, which I did. And I loved playing there. We had a nine-game regular season schedule. Uh, I sprained my ankle, missed half the season. Um, we had a, a coach that was a graduate assistant, uh, no scholarships. I worked in the kitchen at Indiana, taking slop off the plates. Occasionally, I'd throw a plate down to disposal to see what that sounded like. But, um, you know, it was a, like... I, we went on the road with four people to a room, bought our shoes, bought our uniforms, bought our meals. We never even challenged the idea that the men had everything, except for there was one little article that appeared in the paper. Uh, our team was, a, you know, they're my best friends today. We had a, I had a great experience uh, at Indiana in terms of studying, and, uh, you know, I love my teammates. They were, they were really fun. We went to the Final Four that was the Final Four in those days, and we lost, we came out, we came in fourth, which was uh, Immaculata won it. And we had this tiny little paper, uh, in the, uh, article in the paper that said, women lose again. And I was like, <laughs> it, it just, it just kind of just hit me, you know. And, but it, it, it never, you never got mad enough to ever challenge anything. Uh, you know, the uh, assembly hall would have 17,000 people for men. Uh, we, we, you know, we barely got to practice there after the men who practiced from two until seven. Uh, again, miss, you know, you miss your meals, everything. I mean, it was just like, so I moved on. I thought, okay, I'm done with this. I'm going to go to law school. Well, I went, um, I took a year off. You know, you, you can't go to college right away. I couldn't go to law school right away. I ran out of money at Christmas. I went home. My parents were very happy to see me for the first week. Then my dad said, well, what are you doing home? And I said, nothing. And he said, well, you're going to coach your sister's team, who now they had to have teams in Niagara Falls High School, where my parents lived. And the coach was actually interested in bowling. She didn't want to coach the team. So my dad said, you're going to go down and coach that team. I said, Dad, no, I'm not. And I was like, they had lost the night before, 99 to 11. Oh, that's not how I wanted to start. So he goes, yes, you are. And I said, Dad, no, that's not what I want to do. He goes, well, where do you think you're going to sleep tonight? And I said, all right, I'll start coaching now. So that's how I started with my sister. And, you know, that was the beginning of, you know, teams maybe uh, having teams. And I just, you know, I just, it was, I loved it, you know, and have the opportunity. And I look now at, and I tell this story at our basketball camp with like 58-year-olds. I tell them about how I didn't play, didn't have a scholarship, you know, worked as a waitress. And one little eight-year-old raises her hand. She goes, well, how come it was like that? And I look at the eight-year-olds and I go, you know, like any teacher, when you can't answer the question, I said, well, can anyone else answer that question? And another little eight-year-old raises her hand. She goes, sexism. Like that. Eight years old. I mean, they have it figured out, you know. But um, my, my experience now is, um, you know, this is... Uh, I am in my 22nd year at Stanford, and I started here when I was um, 15. So, you know, it's, um, it's really, it's great to see the opportunities that these women have had. And the women I coach now, they don't know anything but what they have. You know, and it's sometimes a little disheartening when, you know, there's someone on full scholarship, uh, you know, you're flying, and, you know, they're like, well, are we flying charter? 
I'm like, no, just get on the plane, you know? I mean, there's just, there's so much education that has to be done. We have come a very long way, I admit that. Um, but we also have a very long way to go. And uh, so that's, um, you know, again, I don't have the numbers or their PowerPoint, but um, I have the passion for seeing this future eight-year-old or 10-year-old or college student have a great experience, you know, to be able to do something that I only could imagine. You know, as a, as a young girl, one of the things that I always wondered, and, um, you know, when you go to the Olympics or you watch an Olympian, and you think, what are they, what do they think about right before they go out and do that, uh, you know, ice skating routine or dive off the high board or, or do anything. And, you know, I, I had the opportunity to coach the Olympic team in Atlanta. And right before we went out for our, for our championship game, you know, I had a chance just to sit in a room. It was kind of dark. And I went through all the things about basketball that I loved. I thought back to the, you know, being a little girl playing basketball where I'd, you know, drive in and miss, and of course I got fouled, so I'd go to the free throw line, you know, just go through all these games in your mind where no one watched, no one cared. And here I am gonna go out into the biggest stage where there'd be 35,000 people, television audience, you know, around the world for the games. And I just thought back about how much I loved the game and how much, you know, how exciting it was and how thankful I was for that opportunity. But it was like I could not even have imagined it when I was a little girl. And now, little girls have this, they can, they can really dream and have this uh, opportunity, and it, uh, we owe it to these little girls to give it to them, not just in basketball, but in, in every sport. And that it's not just as my, my parents, I'm one of five children, one boy, and the way I look at it very simply with Title IX is we never sat down at the dinner table and they served hot dogs to the girls and steak to the boy. You know, it was, if we were having hot dogs, we all had hot dogs. If we were having steak, we all had steak. I'm vegetarian now, but, um, you know, it's like, whatever, you know, it's kind of, I think that Title IX, honestly, I don't even think there should be a need for Title IX. But the little eight-year-old had it figured out. So, you know, I, I applaud everyone in this room that's on the forefront of fighting for that opportunity for that little girl who really did not want to be a cheerleader, but really loves to play ball. following the other two panelists. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> I want to add, is my mic on? Yes. I want to add my expression of appreciation to the Stanford family and to the panelists who have preceded this panel for really setting the stage. But I also want to express my appreciation to all of you that are here today. There are many of you in the audience who know what life was like before Title IX. And there are many of you who have known life only with Title IX. And I can guarantee you, even though I didn't know life as a college or high school athlete before Title IX, it's a lot better now than it was then. So thank you for gathering and being willing to share information and perspectives. As I thought about today's session, how do we know when we achieve gender equity? There were several thoughts that went through my mind, and as I listened to the panelists, a lot of those thoughts were expressed earlier. So what I'd like to do is emphasize some of those points that I feel are worth emphasizing, underscoring them, and then try and put some meat on the bones of some of the points that were made. 
starting off with how do we know when we achieve gender equity. In 1991, the NCA established a gender equity task force. And the word gender equity wasn't one that was used very often at that time. And we brought together advocates of Title IX and skeptics of Title IX. The advocates knew what, what gender equity was, and the skeptics kept saying, gender equity, what's that? How can we achieve it? We don't even know what it is. So we came up with a definition. And Linda mentioned that definition this morning, but I'm going to just put it in similar words that hopefully expresses what gender equity is. An athletics program can be considered gender equitable when the participants in both the men's and women's programs would accept as fair and equitable the overall program of the other gender. That's all it is. Accept the program of the other gender as fair and equitable. It's that simple. In the previous panel, there was discussion about inequities between like sports. Title IX doesn't dictate that you have to treat like sports in a like way. You look at the aggregate. Are you treating your male student athletes and your female student athletes in an equitable way? It's up to the institution to determine the specifics of what you're planning to do. Earlier today, Linda talked about that pie or cake and cutting it into pieces and letting the other person choose which piece they want. That's what gender equity is all about. An institution has its cake, and how are you going to divide up that cake to ensure that your male and female student-athletes are going to get their fair share? Part of our discussion is influenced by the fact that sometimes we lose sight of the fact that we don't have the same history. Men's athletics, just looking at the NCAA alone, had a 75-year head start on women's athletics. Last year, the NCAA celebrated the 25th anniversary of women's championships and the centennial of that organization. So we're not talking like to like. And if you go back even further to the ancient Olympics, not only were women not allowed to participate, they weren't even allowed to spectate. And if they were caught spectating in the crowd, you know what the penalty was? They were thrown off a cliff. True. What message does that send to you? So what were we taught as young females prior to Title IX? I think Mary Jo made the reference. She was labeled as a tomboy. I was a tomboy. And that wasn't a complimentary label. It's not like for like. For, so for us to even start talking about measuring interest without providing opportunity, it doesn't make sense. What happened when we started providing opportunity? The interest grew, and we're not done. Look at the numbers at the high school level. There is unmet interest if we provide 
opportunities. I want to share some numbers with you in respect to how do we know when we achieve gender equity. Sometimes it's easier to recognize when we haven't achieved it. This is a real life situation and David, don't look at the name of the school. I'm, I'm here in a technical assistance fashion only. In 2002-2003, this particular institution had a budget that allowed for an expenditure of $21,000 plus per male student athlete. Same year, $13,000 plus for female student athletes. Now keep in mind, you don't have to spend the same exact number of dollars, but the benefits have to be of the same quality. In 2005-06, same institution, allocations per male athlete, $38,548. An increase of $17,279. For female student athletes, 13,054. An increase of $8. Does that feel like gender equity? Same time period, an increase per male student athlete of $17,279, per female student athlete, $8. Now there's another piece to this, which is really quite interesting. During the same time period, this institution, who had a couple of years prior to this next action that I'm going to tell you about, passed a student referendum to increase the allocations for what were viewed as minor sports dropped four sports, three men's and one women's. So they dropped three sports in this time period and increased the allocation to men's sports by $17,000 per athlete. Does that feel like gender equity? I want to give you a couple of other examples. As we talked about budgets this morning and the influence of our spending. Recently, I read about an institution who had recently constructed a new basketball arena. Two courts in the arena. This article was talking about the new practice facility that they were building at the added cost of several million dollars. And when they were asked, you just built this beautiful new arena, there's ample space for both your men's and women's program. Why are you building this practice facility at the cost of several million dollars, money that could go into both your men's and women's program? The answer was, we need to do it for recruiting. Another institution put lights on a practice football field at a cost of $170,000. They never used that field at night. When asked why they did it, to show our recruits. How are we using our resources? If you don't have enough money or you don't have a cake that's big enough to accommodate everyone in your family, 
You bake a bigger cake or you cut smaller pieces. And if I can just ask you to think about this what if situation. What if we started with the same opportunities for men and women? What if there wasn't a difference in our history? And we had the same expression of enthusiasm and interest between both genders. What would our athletics programs look like today? If we can think about the what-if situation as we move forward and we don't concentrate on finding excuses why we shouldn't be doing things, but we start talking about doing the right things. How do we do the right thing? I was a math major, so bear with me on this last piece that I want to share with you. If you have X number of dollars, and we talk about the fact that we don't have enough money. If you have X number of dollars and you have a commitment to both your men and to your women, and the interest is there for both your men and your women, and you know that you're going to have X number of contests per sport, and you're going to have X number of participants per sport, and you multiply those numbers out, and you add them up, these are the dollars that you have available to you. How are you going to distribute those dollars? Do the math. You need to make some adjustments because maybe one team has to go further than another team because there aren't as many teams in close proximity. Or equipment is more costly in one team than it is in another team. You can make those adjustments, but start looking at your program in a way that defines gender equity. One gender would be willing to accept as their own that which is provided to the other gender. I had some comments that I wanted to make about the survey, but since David opened the door up to your asking questions, I'm going to stop there for now. And hopefully somebody's going to ask the question. And then after David responds, I may have some other comments. Before we take questions, let me, I neglected to address the, the title of our topic. Um, OCR's perspective, at least my perspective on this, is I think it's dangerous if we start assuming that we're close or that we somehow have gotten there yet. OCR's responsibility is to push people to get there, and it's our responsibility to come in and uh, enforce a law if people aren't there. And I, I do have some statistics that um, that would demonstrate we certainly are not there yet. Um, but again, the, the communication, the technical assistance is extremely important because, as I said earlier, I'm going to harken back on this enforcement piece. When you tell a female student or a coach that there is no remedy for them if they come to us, they will not come to us. So we need to start communicating ac accurately because we have reinstated coaches that were terminated because, through retaliation of Title IX. We have gotten them back pay. We do those things. So you need to make sure that your student athletes, your coaches, understand what we can do. And there is a lot we can do. 
<clears throat> statistics. Uh, OCR has a case tracking system, allows us to go back and look at uh, trends through a number of years. We have the same number of Title IX complaints, roughly, that we did in 1995. Um, we find uh, about, in about three-fourths of those violations. That's been fairly consistent throughout the years. So it, it clearly shows that we're not there yet. There are still problems out there uh, with Title IX. One trend that you may find interesting is we're not seeing as many uh, interest and abilities complaints at the intercollegiate level. Now, I don't know why that is a trend, because I suspect that there are still issues there. We're seeing more complaints now in high school than we do in the intercollegiate. That is a trend that, uh, that I can verify. And I, again, uh, we have problems in that area. We find violations. Uh, another trend that we will see is uh, most of our complaints now are coming in the area of facilities. Uh, the, the, the facilities used by the female teams are not up to par uh, to those used by the, the men's teams. And again, most of those are coming in the area of high schools, school districts. And there are problems, we're finding problems, but we are getting resolutions. So with that said, I'll open it up for questions about the uh, survey or anything else. And I'm gonna keep in mind Tara's statement about can anyone answer that if, I, if I'm having problems. <laughs> questions? Um, Ms. Sweet, I was curious in response to uh, Coach Gold's statement about comparing um, program with program across gender, you mentioned that it's up to the institutions to separate the piece of the pie. But he was talking about scholarships, and doesn't the NCAA set that? The NCAA has established maximums on scholarships, but the maximums are not based on like sports, but rather totaling up the number of opportunities for scholarships for men and women, and then it's up to the institution to choose what sports it wants to sponsor, and then they would have to comply with the NCA maximum on scholarships. And I think that's the reason that you were hearing eight and four. It's a school decision. It's yes. a school decision. Hi, Linda Joplin with California Now. Um, David, in December of 99, California Now filed Title IX complaints with the OCR against USC, UCLA, and St. Mary's College. Within a couple years, UCLA settled, uh, added women's crew. Um, St. Mary's, uh, I believe, added lacrosse. And um, the USC complaint went through the, the analysis process, a report was written, um, it went back to DC, it has been sitting there ever since. Um, I'm very frustrated with this. They added more bench warmers to their current team so that their participation percentages went up and were closest to proportion, closer to proportionality. They refused to add any more teams the difference between their scholarship ratios to participation in the scholarship percentage doubled in the worst, going in the worst direction. And more and more women are finishing school with debt than would have been otherwise. And this has gone on for years. 
Yeah, let me address that to the extent I can, given it's an ongoing investigation. Um, it is still open, um, and I think you've already identified what the problem is there, and it somewhat relates to the last gentleman's question. Um, USC has moved uh, it definitely in the direction of being uh, in compliance with the interest and abilities part of Title IX by working towards proportionality. But that's one of the difficulties of proportionality if you have Division I football and scholarships, and it all connects to the, the last panel. Um, there are limits set by the NCAA how many scholarships you can have and for what sports. And although the NCAA and no other athletic association is an excuse for compliance with Title IX, that's clearly in our regulations. We do not let an out if you're having trouble complying with NCAA rules. However, in that uh, spirit of working voluntarily and towards a resolution, uh, we're, we're in a difficult position of trying to find a way uh, to increase the, the number of uh, scholarships and, and financial assistance to the female athletes given those NCAA rules. Um, it's, it's posed a real problem. And at some point, uh, I tell you, in the near future, we're, we're just going to have to end the spirit of cooperation. Pardon? They, they can afford to add another team, but there's, there's limits on how many additional female scholarships you can have. They could add another men's team and not fund it, but now you're having problems with interest and abilities. It's all interconnected and, and, and extremely difficult, and I think it does relate back to some degree if you have uh, football and the number of scholarships that you have on football. You can reach compliance through proportionality if you have the money to do it, but as long as you have all those scholarships on a football team, you're going to have problems with the financial assistance part uh, if they're trying to comply with the rules of how many scholarships a particular team can have under NCAA rules. And, and USC is, uh, to their benefit and to their defense, is, is willing to give the female athletes additional financial assistance. If I could just follow up on, on that for a minute, um, David, and I know everyone appreciated um, the importance of the point that you made that, you know, OCR isn't just sitting there twiddling its thumbs because it doesn't go nuclear um, and have a fund cutoff. And I don't think anybody in this room who's, who's, you know, at all familiar with Title IX would suggest otherwise. But at least the f some of the statistics I've seen, and certainly the survey of coaches that I just conducted, suggested that there were, not that there was no enforcement, but that it was inadequate, and that part of that had to do with um, the lack of sufficient resources and funding levels. And college administrators in the last survey that I saw thought that uh, on balance about 80 percent of higher educational institutions were out of compliance with Title IX. And obviously, you, you know, you can't cut off funding for 80% of higher education institutions. And, you know, you only have the resources to work with some of them, and how many, when you work with them, actually get to where people would be at the place of having the women's team being willing to change places with the men and, and the opposite. So, so I guess I wonder if I could push you a little bit about what 
you think could be done to get us closer to, to compliance, however you want to measure it? Um, well, let me tell you more about how OCR does business. And this is, um, we, we really, our work comes in, in a number of forms, and primarily it's complaints. OCR is unlike some other law enforcement agencies like DOJ's civil rights. DOJ can choose what cases to take and investigate and, and move to enforcement. OCR takes every case that comes in the door where we have jurisdiction and the individual who files the complaint has uh, alleged sufficient facts to suggest a violation. And that, that's actually very, a much, much lower burden than a federal court would impose on you if you're filing a, a lawsuit. And that's why, again, I encourage you to, to seriously consider OCR as an option for enforcement. So we, we are investigating those complaints that come in, but as I said, the, the percentage of complaints that we get in Title IX is extremely low for our, uh, the number of complaints we have in total. In fact, over the years, it has steadily sat at about 1.9% of OCR's entire complaint load. Um, title, well, I'm sorry, that's athletics. Title, title IX in general, and that's another thing I want to leave you all here with today, covers so much more than athletics. And this is important to have a conversation about any part of Title IX we can, but there are things that are equally important, sexual harassment, grievance procedures, that's, that's under Title IX as well, and of course academics. Um, the total percentage of our caseload, uh, or complaint load, uh, was only 6% for Title IX in total, about 1.9% uh, athletics, and again, percentage of intercollegiates even smaller. Now there's another way OCR can, uh, can investigate cases. You bring them to us, again that's complaint investigation. OCR has a responsibility to initiate a number of compliance reviews uh, each year. That means we can choose which institutions we're going to go out and investigate and under what uh, statute we're going to investigate. Um, but again, that's where our discretion comes in. Uh, and when we, you have a shrinking workforce, an escalating complaint load, which now sits at about 6,000, or close to 6,000 complaints a year, um, there's not a lot of room for uh, proactive compliance reviews, and we have responsibility for so many other areas of civil rights. Uh, disability makes up over 50% of our entire caseload, national origin, about 18%. We get a hodgepodge of multiple issues, it's about 11%. Then there's some that simply are filed with us but we don't have jurisdiction over. They go to the EEOC, that makes up the difference. So when we're targeting our proactive reviews where we will go out and initiate an investigation, uh, we, we may base it on where are we seeing most of our complaints? How can we address that huge complaint load? How can we try to bring that down? Um, <clears throat> this year, we are going to be doing Title IX athletics compliance reviews, uh, both at the intercollegiate and at the interscholastic level. And it's not going to be a huge number, but I, I, I would say it's still extremely important because the threat that we could come to your institution um, will force schools at both levels to start looking at themselves, starting to work to bring themselves into compliance. 
but a lot of where our proactive initiatives are going to be this year are in some areas where we've seen a lot of problems. The overrepresentation of minorities in special education, uh, English language learners being put into special education, disability access. Um, we're going to be doing a number of Title IX reviews, just not athletics. Sexual harassment. Last year we did a number of reviews in uh, academics. Are women being admitted uh, to elite programs such as engineering and physics in a number of schools? Um, we're looking at those other areas of Title IX as well and trying to focus on those. Um, but the other, to answer the question, what can we do different? Um, our other piece of what we do, and that's technical assistance. This is part of it, coming out, educating um, individuals about responsibilities under Title IX, going to conferences uh, where institutions are present, telling them what their responsibilities are. On Monday, I'll be at the NCAA's Gender Equity Conference where I'll be uh, conducting a presentation with Janet uh, Judge, who is phenomenal. If you're looking for someone who really knows Title IX, uh, she's, she's an expert in Title IX. We're going to be training Title IX coordinators. I forget who it was, but they, they made light of the fact that a lot of people don't know their Title IX coordinators. That is true. I will go to a, a room of uh, members of the NCAA or uh, other athletic associations. The room will be full. I'll ask them if they are a Title IX coordinator. They don't know. I ask them if they know their Title IX coordinator. Again, they don't know. So part of it that we can do differently is a lot better education. That was one of the recommendations of the commission. I think that that's one thing we're trying to do much better is get out and educate uh, institutions about what their responsibilities are so that they can fix those problems. I, I just want to comment one thing um, more. Um, the idea, the, the basic fact that 80% uh, or something close to that of colleges are out of compliance, um, I'd like to think that it would bring a collective gasp um, from uh, the populace. Um, as Billie Jean mentioned last night, we are the choir here, so we're talking to the choir. But um, this is uh, really a, a crisis in a sense. Uh, and I think I would like to encourage that every one of us continues with what we're already doing and uh, increases our efforts to outreach to uh, the ordinary uh, mainstream service organizations, NGOs in the community, um, whatever groups to begin advocacy because when people get on a bandwagon like what happened after uh, the national championship game and the commentaries uh, about the Rutgers team, everything changed uh, or a lot changed uh, and and David is talking about what the plans that OCR has for the next year how they're going to handle things the percentage of different types of, of grievances that they'll be looking into that could change too if there were a stronger groundswell about these kind of issues yeah. uh, David just uh, uh, did I get this uh, correct so the question here was OCR goes into uh, a situation, finds an institution not in compliance with the scholarship provisions, that they're giving out more scholarships to uh, men than, are, than their percentage in the athletic uh, student body, uh, the athletic uh, program. And you would just 
wait as opposed to tell them they couldn't, they had to shrink whatever they were giving men? No, it's, uh, it's much more complicated than that that I cannot get into the details, but I'm sure all of you, and I know Donna, you know this, the, uh, the letter that OCR issued uh, a number of years ago about 1% proportionality is extremely difficult to get to. Um, and USC has done a, a good job of closing the gap, but they're not there yet for us to, um, to close that investigation. They have come a long way on interest and abilities, but they're far away from being in compliance with the uh, financial assistance area. So your, your answer is you will wait until no. we're just, still, you we're will just wait. We're still working with them to bring them into compliance, and that's about all I can say on it. And that, that is uh, a case that, again, has been around. Uh, it's one I'm quite for aware eight years. of. For eight years. We'll, and we'll, you'll wait for eight years. I, am, it's, I consider it my responsibility to, to move it along. Again, I haven't okay. been here that entire eight-year period, but uh, that's one that we uh, intend to close. Um, second question. I've, I've heard from various sources that while the March uh, 2005 clarification specifically says um, that a non-response will be considered an indication of lack of interest, that there were some oral representations on the part of the uh, Office of Civil Rights that that was not the case. Can you clarify that? Yeah, it, let me... It, what, what, what is the position of OCR? Okay. Let me first ask everyone, how, how many people have read the clarification itself? Okay, now how many people have actually read the technical assistance manual that came with it? Um, because that's, that's a pretty important part of it. Let me first, I'll address your question, but let me first tell you what the interest survey is not. It is not a measure of comparable, inter comparable interest. And that discussion up here earlier was really focused on comparative interest between men and women. Are women interested in sports to the same level as men? If that's what an institution is using that for, they are wrong. That, that interest survey is uh, designed, and it was designed by statisticians from the National Center of Education Statistics. It was designed to do one thing, identify enough interest. So if, if an institution is not offering uh, a sport, let's say they don't have soccer. Who are my soccer athletes out there? Do I have any, how many, how many student athletes does it take to have a soccer team? 22, so all that survey is looking for is to identify 22 women. So if, if because what we're using it for is to identify, is there any unmet interest out there? So we're only looking for enough under the part three test, because part three test requires you to show that there, uh, in order to say you're in compliance with part three, there's no unmet interest, they have the ability to perform at the intercollegiate level, and there's competition. So we're really, the interest survey was really only addressing that first part. You somehow have to measure whether there's unmet interest out there. So the interest survey is just trying to communicate with the students, are there 22 of you out there that are interested in, in soccer? And if there are, then the institution has a responsibility to look at those other two things. Do those 22 students have the ability, uh, and when they do that, 
probably have organizational meetings, talk to those students, assess that ability. And then the next thing they got to look at is, is there competition in the area? So the let, let, me, let me just repeat the question in two parts. Maybe this okay. will be easier. First part. Um, first part is if someone says, uh, if, if there is no response from a student, uh, is it correct that you will interpret that as lack of interest? It's, and I will get to that, but I think it's extremely important to clarify, again, what this survey does. No, I, under, I understood the explanation. I'm, I'm just trying to make sure that yeah. everyone else in here understands that because um, you could have, uh, again, the statisticians designed this to get a high response rate. And so that's why OCR recommends that you conduct it in a fashion that's going to get a high response rate. And we, we mentioned two examples. Now, that's not an exhaustive list. One is uh, that you do it along with registration. You force all students to take the survey uh, when they register for classes. So you would get an extremely high response rate. The other is the email option that we recommended a means of getting a high response rate. Um, now, we want a high response rate, and we would prefer an extremely high response rate, but you could have a response rate of 2% and still, uh, still capture those 22 students and have a responsibility. But on the, uh, the email, the recommended uh, email survey, uh, we did say in the uh, clarification that a lack of response could be measured as a lack of interest, but under certain circumstances. One, you have to inform the student of that, first of all. Two, you have to... Uh, the student if, who didn't respond. The student who didn't respond in the, in the communication, and if that student didn't respond, and this is in the clarification, you have to make reasonable efforts to follow up with that student. Um, the, other, the only other way you can... <laughs> To do it is again you have to follow up with that student now there, there was a, some uh, comments about this earlier about the email survey and it ending up in spam um, that's highly unlikely um, we we searched a number of universities email policies when we were looking at this email option uh, there are a number of uh, universities out there Purdue University of Texas uh, some other major universities that have email policies that says that is their official means of communication and they presume a student will read it. I don't want to make light of the uh, Virginia Tech issue, but the, way, the first way they were trying to communicate an emergency to students was through email. That's how students communicate now. I even looked at Stanford's email policy before I came here today and they have uh, an email policy that says if you're getting an email from the, the university, the spam filter is turned off. It's not going to end up in the spam folder. If it's not an email address coming from the university, sure, it could end up in spam, but this is an email that's going to come from the university. And I, I pose the question to you because I'm, I'm, I'm willing to work with you on this. What is a better way? of asking those 22 students that we're looking for, for soccer, if they're interested in soccer, other than communicating directly with them. And we see the best way to communicate is through email. You're familiar I, with the, the third prong and the series of uh, formerly enforced suggestions in terms of looking at club sports, looking at the to be recruited population and what's happening in high school. Um, and since most of our universities in this country recruit from 
not their existing student bodies, but an incoming high school class, it is beyond most of us here to, uh, to have the OCR say that you can take any uh, email assessment or any assessment of the existing student body and make that singularly um, a, a, a determination of whether you have an interested pool when for men, you're recruiting from off campus. And it is, it is beyond any of us who do research in academia that any statistician anywhere, that the one you use would not be hired in any of these schools, I don't think, that would say that a non-response is an indication of anything except a non-response. That, that is, for the Department of Education in the United States to have a position like that is appalling. Again, we're not looking for comparative interest. We're trying to find those students out there. And it's, you know, what is the better way of finding those students? Because as I said with the Title IX coordinator, they don't even know who they are. So would the student athlete know how to find them? Is the uh, written survey that's sitting in the gymnasium the best way for them to find it? Um, the email going to directly to them is, we think, the best way to ask those 22 students. Because 25 is the, the most you need under NCAA rules to add a team. So you're really looking at the institution for 25 students. Yeah. yeah. A brief, briefly, Judy, and then I want to throw it open to some other questions so that we get other people involved in the debate. Okay, a couple of comments. First of all, David, one of our concerns is you already have a pre-selected population. If somebody was interested in soccer and that university didn't sponsor soccer, they're not there. So it doesn't make any sense to be just looking at those that are on campus. Secondly, I've had an opportunity to talk to university students who are in sport management programs. So you know that they are interested in sports and many of them were student athletes. I had a room of 200 students and I said to them, how many of you respond to email surveys? Not one hand went up. Then I talked to 40 graduate students, sport management program. How many of you respond to email surveys? One hand went up and she indicated she responds because she's a marketing major. University presidents through the NCA have communicated to OCR that this is a flawed process. They've identified the reasons. These are the practitioners that have to implement this. Why is OCR not listening? Again, it's, uh, it's what we're trying to look for. We're not compare, it's not comparative interest, it's trying to identify students. And I still leave the question on the table. Who's got a better idea of identifying that unmet interest? Because Don, I agree with you that there are other things OCR looks at, but they've never been required things that an institution has to do. The institution under the 1979 policy guidance was you can use any assessment tool you would like. This is this email uh, survey, all of you need to remember, it's a tool. It's not mandatory. It's something that uh, the institution can use if they want, if they don't use it. That is uh, not of a concern to us at OCR. The only thing we're going to be expecting when we come in under an investigation is that you are in compliance. The 1996 clarification. The 96 clarification, again, that's uh, a misconception. It does not require uh, those number of things. It still says the uh, school can use any assessment that uh, of their choosing. It does not give a laundry list of things the school must do. It gives a laundry list of things OCR may look at 
And I can tell you that uh, in practice, uh, institutions were using surveys, um, probably institutions that are represented here, and they were not good surveys. So OCR was merely trying to come up with a survey that was much better than those that were out there, make it uh, accessible to institutions so that they could uh, utilize it. Now let me it clarify one other misconception about Title IX. I do understand the principle of build it and they will come, but Title IX, uh, or the requirements of Title IX are only to uh, accommodate the interests and abilities of your existing students. And what's going on in high schools is extremely important when making that determination, but the, an institution's responsibility is to their students under Title IX. So, Again, we look at, and I argue that the survey allows you to take into consideration what's going on in the high schools. Uh, the survey has all the sports recognized by the NCAA and other uh, athletic associations. The reason for that is we didn't want to give schools an opportunity to take things off the survey so that a student wouldn't be able to respond that they are interested in that sport. But we also say in the clarification that an athlete Whoever administers the survey can add things to it if they like. We just had a bottom line. You can't leave these out because they are uh, championship sports recognized by an athletic association. So if in your high school area where your feeder schools are coming from, you see a sport that uh, has a lot of interest, add it to the survey and ask the students Th if th they want that. Thanks. We're almost out of time and you'll be around and now people know what you look like and how to find you. So, so I'm sure there'll be some more. <laughs> I'm leaving tonight, by the way. <laughs> uh, before you go, so the gentleman in the back. Thank you. Uh, I have a, a quick question. Shouldn't be as extensive. Uh, Judy Sweet, I liked your definition of uh, when we know we're there uh, for gender equity. I think I, I think I have it right. Uh, accept the program of the under, other gender when a, the athletes would willingly accept. Is that correct? I, I like. I think that's a fair uh, statement. And my question is, since there are a lot of sports on the men's side that we're there. I mean, I know rowing, gymnastics, volleyball, swimming, tennis on the men's side. They would willingly accept the program of the other gender. What do we do for them from a regulatory standpoint now that that we're there? Do we continue to punish them, or? What can we do? Well, keep in mind that we're talking about aggregate. We're not talking about like sport. And I think maybe your comments were directed at men's rowing would like to have what women's rowing has, men's tennis would like to have what women's tennis has. Exactly. That, that, that's what I'm referring to. And that's not what Title IX says. Title IX talks about the aggregate numbers. One other point that I want to make, in the earlier discussion, we were talking about proportionality. And we were always talking about eliminating men's sports. And those of us that have advocated for Title IX have repeatedly said we are not in favor of eliminating men's sports. And proportionality doesn't mean eliminating men's sports. Proportionality can be met by adding women's sports. And that's what we would be advocating for. But, but and you what can did do you that mean? by using the three prongs, determining where the interest is, adding a sport so you have a history of adding women's programs, and ultimately, if you still haven't met Title IX using those two prongs, proportionality. Did, but when you ex, you're saying accept the program of the other gender, you didn't mean 
by the, the equivalent Not, sport. Correct. So we'd all want to be football players. I'm sorry. So then we'd all want to be football players and basketball players, which is In terms of possible. benefits afforded, <laughs> I, correct. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Are there? I, I want to highlight what, what Judith said, and this is the view of the department as well. We do not advocate the cutting of teams to come into compliance. Uh, now, the, the issue is we, we leave it up to you, the experts at the institution, how you're going to come into compliance. You have three options, proportionality, prong two, showing a practice and history of getting there, and three, meeting all the unmet interest on campus. Uh, as, as Judith said, you could comply with prong one without cutting teams. Institutions are choosing not to do it. Uh, unfortunately, they're also not moving towards prong three, which is meeting all the unmet interest. And that, that was the only thing the survey was there to do, is help an institution find that unmet interest and meet it. The issue is they are choosing to reach proportionality by cutting teams. And unfortunately, under OCI's current policies, they're allowed to do that. We, we maybe have time for a couple more questions, and there are, I know, other issues, male practice players, somebody want to follow up on the Rutgers incident, and Don Imus, so, so feel free. Anyone we haven't heard from so far who hasn't? Okay. Have we heard from you? Earlier in the day. Yeah, yeah. So we'll come back to you, but why don't we give this student here a chance and then come back to you? a legal or policy question, but it was triggered by what Tara was saying. And, um, I'm just curious, how do we balance the goal of gender equity um, so where we feel we have equal opportunity with the need to um, have an appreciation in our generation for how far we've come and that we haven't, that we don't take anything for granted yet? Were you asking me that? Well, I think that one of the things is, uh, just as an example, it's great to see you here. So that you get an appreciation for how far we have come and it has been a long way. Um, but in fact, um, there is a lot of disparity um, between, and, and I'm, I coach one of what I call have teams. Women's basketball uh, is very much, you know, in terms of scholarship support, uh, funding, but um, there's, there's a lot of subtle differences that still happen on every campus and you know you're saying the 80 percent I'd be really surprised that there's actually 20 percent that are in compliance I, I'd like to know who one of those places or who they are um, because honestly the, 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 the things that happen day to day uh, whether it's um, you know whether it's facilities whether it's travel opportunities whether it's per diem for women's teams versus men's teams yes we have come a long way and for me, I don't, I don't like it when, you know, our team, uh, you know, they just will see things. Well, you know, USC got really nice flip-flop from Nike. How come we don't get those? You know, I mean, it's like, I'd like them to see the big picture. So I think that it's great that you're here. Um, and I think that sometimes we, we all develop a little bit of a comfort level, you know. But um, what, what has kind of happened is we, we have come a long way, but there's still a huge battle. And I think um, just, you know, like with this whether it's a survey or whatever, there's people 
are really resistant to change. And whether it's, uh, and it, it shouldn't necessarily be, um, you know, cutting the cake up to give so much of it to maybe men's basketball, football, women's basketball, a couple women's sports, and then you have all these people that basically have to fundraise for their positions or, you know, that's, there's very different experience. Um, and, you know, I think your question is very good. As a coach, I try to remind our players a little bit of how fortunate they are. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's a process that's ongoing. And as a coach, sometimes it's hard. You know, I'll tell them about being a waitress or paying for school or, you know, just paying off my student loan. Um, but it's not reality for a lot of these uh, young people uh, today in, in some of the, quote, prime sports. But um, there's, there is, uh, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. And, you know, that's, that's great that you're here to kind of see it on the forefront. How many other students are here? That's great. Thanks. Yes, and you in the back. Oh, I'm so sorry. Anita. Oh, sorry. Okay. Give you the last question. Oh, well, all right. Um, puts a little extra pressure on. Um, this is kind of, uh, I'm depressed. I mean, all this time, all these tricks, all these ways to do things that are not honest, in my opinion. Um, you say 80% of the schools are not in compliance, and this is the 35th year of Title IX. Um, where is there hope there? You know, where is there honesty in, in sports, in the administration of sport, therefore? How can I get kids in uh, middle school excited about sports opportunities and going on to high school and potentially college if we have a system that is so, basically, the only word I can think of is corrupt and uh, lacking in ethics? And I, you know, that's a harsh thing to say, but what I've heard is just basically their rules, we break them, uh, we find ways. The survey is, again, the survey is to find ways. There are other ways. You go to the kids and talk to them. You have a meeting. Uh, surveys don't work, and yet it's a part that scares people. So um, we need leadership to do the right thing, not to get along with the almost correct thing, I think. And I hope that uh, OCR, I know you work really hard. You've got a lot of stuff to do. But people should be fear and trembling when they come and be prepared right away to get it right because it's not so hard to get it right. This is not brain surgery we're talking about. It's about doing the right thing as the leaders in education services. That's what we're talking about. So, I'm depressed. Anyone want a last response or is that the note on which to, you know, go out? recharge and come back with renewed. So thank you, uh, thanks to the panelists and to all of you. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.